So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, giving us your word, and in particular, thank you for giving us uh, these verses to memorize. We ask that you help us so that we are able to have your word in our thinking more and more so that we're shaped by your thoughts and then enabled to live for you. May that be the case now as we look at your word. Please use this next section in the life of David to make us more like our Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Paradise Lost, John Milton describes Satan's mutiny with these words. And let me just say this is Old English. Um, it may be a little tough to get, but I think you'll get the, the sobering effect. Satan's mutiny now. His pride had cast him out from heaven with all his host of rebel angels, by whose aid aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers, he trusted to have equaled the Most High. If he opposed with the ambitious aims against the throne and monarchy of God, raised impious war in heaven and battle proud, with vain attempt, he, the almighty power, hurled headlong, flaming through the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to the bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal power, who durst defile the omnipotent to arms, such place eternal justice had prepared for those rebellious here, their prison ordained in utter darkness and their portion set as far removed from God and light of heaven as far from the center, thrice the utmost pole. The need of the hour is to understand, to see, to be sobered by the folly of living for yourself. And so our topic today is the peril of ignoring God's rule and reign the peril of ignoring God's rule and reign. It comes to us from 1 Samuel chapter, or 2 Samuel chapter 1, the first 16 verses. If you have a Bible and can follow along, 1 Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. And uh, here's how we're going to approach this. Uh, we want to, first of all, look at the promise of a better kingdom for what you for which you've been made. And having touched on that, then we want to see the temptation that's before us in creating our own kingdom. And then finally, we'll suggest one specific move that you can make this week to keep better in step with Jesus. So, uh, first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, the first 16 verses. After the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. 
And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man told him, And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. I answered, Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? He answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. The end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel bring us uh, to essentially the same place that we find ourselves at the end of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, Israel's experiment at the end of 1 Samuel, and now here the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, had failed and failed miserably. And so this chapter begins with really three players. We have uh, David, and then we have this unknown, un unidentified person who comes to him. And then there's also a reference to Saul. And you'll see that in those first two verses. Um, there's Saul, exhausted David, and an unknown person on his way to meet David in Ziklag. Now, just uh, 
to help us understand how the narrator puts this passage together, you will see that uh, verses 1 and 2 talk about an Amalekite arriving, and then verses 15 and 16 about an Amalekite eliminated. So they, the passage is balanced on the front and end. And then the next verses, uh, verses 3 to 10, there's a conversation between this individual and David. And then verses 13 and 14, another conversation, they balance. And right in the center, verses 11 and 12, there is an account of great mourning. So the whole passage builds around this idea of mourning. Again, <laughs> that's not very good news. And so we want to ask the question, how do we get to this state of affairs? Well, the short answer is we're at this point because uh, Israel and the Philistine armies are fighting and the Philistines have the upper hand. That's the short answer. But there's more to the story. Uh, we're also at this point because Israel had said, we want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king. And this king left a lot to be desired. However, the Lord promised, and it's a wonderful promise, that he would not forsake his people for his great name's sake. And you will see it there in chapter 12, verses 22 and following. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, for it has pleased him to bless them, to make them a people for himself. That's the background to 2 Samuel 1. And how can we be sure that God has promised to bless his people today? How do we know that? Well, there are a couple indicators that I think are pretty solid. Uh, the first one is that we have the book of 2 Samuel. We not only have 2 Samuel, but 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles and Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all the rest of the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. God continues to reveal himself for the sake of his people, for the establishment of his kingdom and Jesus. Didn't he teach us to pray, may your kingdom come May your will be done. He envisions a time when it will come on earth as it is in heaven. So can you see the value of having this perspective that God will not forsake his people for his great name's sake? It's of tremendous value wherever you are today. We are very much like ancient Israel, except for God's grace in Christ, we would all go astray. So Christian, whatever your burdens, whatever the problems that face you, whatever the confusion you feel, whatever your sins, 
lift up your eyes and lift up your heart and look to Jesus. He's a full-service Savior. He has said, through his Holy Spirit, God will not forsake you for his great name's sake. Well, let's go on now and look at the way in which these verses are put together. Verses 1 and 2, up in front of us, there's dead Saul, an exhausted David, and some unknown figure who is approaching David at Ziklag. Who is this guy, anyway? Well, he's bedraggled-looking. Uh, dirt on his head. Torn clothes. And as he comes into David's presence, he bows low in submission to him. He's come from the fighting where the armies of Israel are um, perhaps 60 miles away. And... David doesn't know him from Adam. But he does know that the Philistines and the Israelites were going to engage in combat. This man comes bringing bad news. He's dressed, he's clothed, he has his hair, dirt on his head because he's in mourning. That's the reason he looks the way he looks. And he says, this is what happened. The Israelite armies have fled. Many have been killed. Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead too. And David wants to know how he has these details. And so he tells us in verses 6 through 10. And this is his story. By chance... He had been on Mount Gilboa. And while he was there, he sees Saul, who is mortally wounded. The Philistines are closing in on him. And Saul looks to him and he says, who are you? And he says, I'm an Amalekite. And Saul says to him, well, please, put me to death. And so this man then does oblige with a mercy killing. And then he goes on and he says, um, and while I was there, I took Saul's crown and his armlet, his regalia, and uh, that's what happened. Now, the narrator has told us things that David doesn't know at this point. And he has also told us things that this Amalekite doesn't know. For example, we know from the narrator, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, that, David is, or that Saul has committed suicide. David doesn't know that. He only has to go on what this uh, Amalekite says to him. And David has just returned from defeating the Amalekites and recovering his family and the families of all his soldiers and their livestock. Uh, The Amalekites, remember, had come and had burned Ziklag, their town, and taken all these people captive. Well, the Amalekite doesn't know 
what we know, that David has just returned from that ordeal. So let's just pause here now and ask ourselves, what do we know about the Amalekites? Well, if you go to, Gen uh, if you go to Exodus 17, and then Deuteronomy uh, 25, and then Psalm 83, and of course, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we can say a number of things about the Amalekites. This man, who is speaking with David, comes from an infamous people group who have long rebelled against the Lord. And he proves that he is one with them, somebody who has not been assimilated into Jewish thinking and faith by his bold-faced lies right here. But all of this has to wait uh, to be unfolded. The narrator, the narrator just stops us. Uh, with that information, everything comes to a screeching halt, as it were, because the narrator wants us to see the sequence and understand what's really important here. So verses 11 and 12, as we said earlier, are the center of the passage. And what's David's reaction? He tears his clothes in mourning, as do those around him. And he, with his soldiers, they weep. They fast and they mourn from that point until evening. Why? Saul is dead. David is dead. The people of God, they have been defeated. We don't know what's going through David's mind at this point, but consider these possible elements of his, great, uh, of his grief. The anointed king is gone. Now what will happen to the people of God? His best friend David has died, or Jonathan has died on the battlefield. He's exhausted from months of running from Saul. He's recently escaped the Philistines himself, and he gets home just to find his city destroyed, his family gone, and then he tracks them down, engages the Amalekites, defeats them, except for those that were able to escape on camel, as we remember, and now he's back. He must have been drained, uh, glad to be home, but rubble around him from the burned city. And beyond all that, the honor of God has been besmirched before the enemies of God. You can imagine David, th or David thinking to himself, oh, just think what could have been. All of it's gone. So, verse 12, they all mourn. And they fast and they cry. And their expressing their grief takes precedence over anything else. They don't just say, well, your feelings don't matter. 
let's just get back to life as normal. Uh-uh. They grieve together over these awful things that have happened. But this isn't the end. And so verse 13, David again says to this Amalekite, where do you come from? And he says, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And with those words, he unknowingly tips his hand. How so? Well, it was possible for people of other ethnicities to join the nation of Israel. There were aliens. And as you remember in the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel was told, you be particularly attentive to widows, orphans, and strangers, aliens, sojourners. There's a class of people that are on the outside that have special needs, and you pay attention to them. Well, he was one of those sojourners, but did you notice? We're told that he's a son of a sojourner. In other words, he's like a second-generation immigrant. Why is that of significance? Because as this son of a sojourner, he had grown up in Israel and understood something of Israel's values. And if he had embraced those values, he would not have, first of all, said that he had killed the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't have said it for two reasons. One is because it would have been a dastardly thing to do. He, would have, he wouldn't have said it for another reason. It was a lie. And he wouldn't have said that. Neither would he, at the point of seeing Saul dead, been thinking about, hmm, I wonder who's going to succeed him. Neither would he have been thinking, let me take the regalia, the crown, and the armlet, and maybe I can pass them on. Neither would he have left the king's body there. He would have seen to it that the body was taken off the battlefield, the king's body was taken off the battlefield and properly buried. What's he thinking about? He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about promoting himself. And so verse 14, David says, how is it that you were afraid, that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? As somebody who's a sojourner in Israel, what in the world were you thinking about? And the answer is, he's not thinking God's way. The fear of God is not in this man. He's looking out for number one. And so he decides on a plan to ingratiate himself to David, who he anticipates is the next king. To do so, he has to get to David first before anybody else so that he can tell David the story, his version of the story. 
And then he has to give David the crown and the armlet, tokens of his homage and pledges of his faithfulness. He's intent on building a kingdom for himself. He's not interested in the reign and rule of God. He's interested in his own agenda. And so verses 15 and 16. David orders him executed. And perhaps then to the dead corpse, David says, your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, interestingly, if you look at it, this section closes the way it opened. Uh, reference to Saul's death in verse 1 reference to the death of the anointed one in verse 16. David's defeat of the Amalekites, David's execution of the Amalekite at the end. And then this messenger with dirt on his head comes mourning and we end with this messenger having blood on his own head. Well, David has destroyed the Amalekites. That's the larger picture. And that judgment is crowned now by the execution of this one Amalekite as representative of the whole tribe. And in terms of understanding the, 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 the message here, it's this. God's judgment falls on those who live for themselves, who ignore God's kingdom and God's reign. Where does that leave us? How is there any application? This account ends with a twist, and it's this. The Amalekite meets a totally unexpected, violent death, though he had come really to David to look for a government job. Who would have ever guessed that failure to promote and to preserve the honor of the king would tick off David. Who would ever have guessed that? Such values aren't worth living and dying for when it, you're operating in the world of self-promotion. But God is building a kingdom, and in that kingdom, those are values worth living and dying for. And let's be honest with ourselves here. I think we're among friends, aren't we? Um, this Amalekite is not the first person to disregard God's law, to break his covenant, to try to promote himself, right? 
this room is filled with little Amalekites. Isn't that right? But there's another fascinating twist here. It's a twist to this story and to our story that we dare not miss. Jesus Christ is the righteous judge of all the earth. We are told that before him every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will give an account before Christ of every careless word you've said. Isn't that a, 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 a scary thought? Now, Jesus came into this world to serve his people. And he encountered people like this Amalekite, opposed to God's rule and his reign, intent on building a kingdom for themselves. And so they refused to listen to him. In fact, they falsely accused him abused him, eventually put him to death, and here's this twist. By enduring the suffering to which Jesus was exposed and absorbing the judgment that came on him, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to the question is, he's forsaken by the Father to endure the judgment that you deserve. And it's by faith that we enter into this new kingdom that he is establishing by virtue of his death and resurrection. We enter into his new kingdom by faith. We are given his resurrection life by faith. By faith, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And God's end game is that we might become more and more like the one who has suffered and died in our place, endured abuse on our behalf, made us new inside out. And God's end game is that we become conformed more and more to the values, the priorities, the principles of his kingdom and that that kingdom be extended worldwide. And so we pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So how is the kingdom of God established and extended in our world? Well, through the word of God, the people of God, and the spirit of God. That's how he does it. And one way that he extends his kingdom is as the word of God has more and more influence in our own thinking. You know, Psalm 1, verse 2. Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And you know Psalm 119, 11. Your word I've hidden in my heart 
that I might not sin against you. And you know, Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So here's the point of application. Would you please commit yourself this week to memorizing Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. It will be of great value in shaping you to be like Jesus. You say, I, I don't know if I can. Well, we have some encouragement for you. Um, one of the smallest, the youngest among us, uh, gives us a great example to follow. Austin, can you help us please? <laughs>